Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. It sucks because so much evidence, or if there was any, is literally like probably non-existent now, and that was crucial. That was literally the only thing that we had for any hope of finding out what happened to her. Welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. And today is part three of our Long Island serial killer series. We're finishing it off today. How are we feeling about that, Lex? A little sad because this is a case we love to give attention to and talk about and advocate for the victims in this case. Yeah. But, you know, we don't want to get too redundant or in the weeds and things. And we do have for the next several weeks, the other episodes, the bonus episodes that we're releasing on Fridays about each and every victim. So if you haven't had your fill, you have to continue to check those out and learn about each and every one of them. Absolutely. And then of course, if you are a member of our Patreon, you would be getting all three of these episodes at once. And just a reminder for anybody that hasn't dabbled into our Patreon yet, we release all of our multi-parters together on Patreon before you get it in your general feed along with a lot of other things. So yeah, like a weekly episode on another case. So that's four extra episodes per month. So Patreon's kind of the place to be. Patreon is the place to be. But do we want to just kick it off? Yes. After we remind everybody about the initiative that all of these things we're doing about the Long Island serial killer case is sort of culminating in. And that's the Heavy Metal Project. Yep. We launched it May 17th. We partnered with jewelry brand Jimmy Toast, who's created 10 necklaces to honor each of the victims, each one going up for sale on those Fridays that those bonus episodes about them are being released. And 100% of net profits are going to swap which is the Sex Workers Outreach Project. And that's really the reason why we're doing these episodes, to advocate for the safety of these sex workers and um, to help prevent future pain and you know chaos that someone like the Long Island serial killer has created in its wake. So you know, we want to honor the victim's memories, keep these conversations going, and of course, you know, raise money for this amazing foundation. Yeah. So check those out on the heavymetalproject.com and just more information regarding, you know, what we're covering in these episodes. And you can learn more about the victims there too. It's kind of just like a one, one stop shop. That is correct. All right. Well, now shall we kick it off? 
Gilgo Beach enjoys a remote location on Long Island's South Shore. The perfect destination for those who want to get away from it all. But it's also an attractive spot to those with something to hide. When bodies were discovered along this shoreline, Gilgo Beach would forever be stained as a dumping ground for murder victims and synonymous with the search for a serial killer. On May 1st of 2010, 23-year-old Shannon Gilbert disappeared. Shannon was a sex worker, and that night she'd gone to the home of a new client, Joseph Brewer. Brewer lived in Oak Beach in Suffolk County, Long Island, a wealthy gated community, the kind of place where nothing bad ever happens. But hours later, something bad did happen inside Brewer's home, something terrible. We don't know what was going on behind closed doors, but whatever it was changed Shannon's life and the lives of countless others forever. While she was still in Brewer's house, Shannon called 911. She was terrified. She told the 911 operator that people were after her, but she couldn't say who and she couldn't say why. Shannon ran screaming from Brewer's house, banging on neighbors' doors, begging for someone, anyone to help her, but they couldn't. And Shannon vanished into the night, never to be seen again. And on its own, Shannon's case remains an enigma. Who was she running from and where did she go? But the search for Shannon revealed an even more shocking case, one of the biggest mysteries in U.S. history, and that is the Long Island serial killer. While searching for Shannon, investigators uncovered 10 bodies, all murdered, all connected to sex work, all likely victims of the Long Island serial killer, and none of them were Shannon. A year and a half after Shannon went missing, the police finally found her. Her remains were three quarters of a mile away from her last known location. But how could that be? Law enforcement had searched that area again and again and again. They deployed hundreds of officers, used specialized high-tech forensics equipment, and a dozen trained cadaver dogs. But somehow, they missed Shannon's body, a stone's throw away from Brewer's home. Shannon's family didn't believe it, and neither did the public. Everyone suspected that somebody was lying. Or perhaps, maybe many somebodies were lying. Then, when the Suffolk County Police Chief was arrested in 2015, after an alleged history of violence towards sex workers, the public was more than rattled. More skepticism erupted. If the head of the Suffolk County Police had lied about something as big and as serious and as salacious as this, what else had they lied about? And how severely had these lies impacted, hindered, or even sabotaged this investigation? So today's case continues on December 9th of 2015. Adele's Hello and Justin Bieber's Sorry led the music charts, while the record-breaking Star Wars film The Force Awakens becomes the highest-grossing domestic film of all time. In pop culture, comedian Steve Harvey mistakenly announces the winner of Miss Universe as Miss Columbia instead of the correct winning contestant, Miss Philippines. That was really a moment in pop culture history. Quite a blunder. It's crazy. And German Chancellor Angela Merkel is named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. And the third setting for this case is Oak Beach, New York. Technically, this area is named Gilgo Oak Beach Captree, but everyone just calls it Oak Beach. And this place is an integral character in the story and saga that is the Long Island serial killer. And if you've listened to the first two parts of the series, you already know a little bit about Oak Beach. If you've listened to season one of Unraveled, then you're already familiar with the intrigue and mystique of this place. Located at the easternmost part of Jones Beach Island, Oak Beach is what the U.S. calls a census-designated place. As in, on paper, Oak Beach is part of the town of Babylon in Suffolk County, New York. But unofficially, it's kind of its own thing. 
Oak Beach is really small. It has two gas stations, one restaurant, and zero grocery stores. But Oak Beach's seclusion is a big part of the appeal of this place. It's a refreshing change from the crowded streets of New York City. In fact, Oak Beach residents pay handsomely to escape those crowds. It's the kind of place where three-bedroom houses go for over half a million dollars. 20 years ago, Oak Beach had a population of about 600 people. But today, only about 200 people live there. And by the end of this episode, you might understand why most people got the hell out of Oak Beach. You met her first degree in parts one and two of this series. Her name is Amanda, and she's Megan Waterman's sister. As you learned in part one, Megan went missing after meeting with an unknown client on Long Island in June of 2010. Six months later, Megan's body was discovered during the search for Shannon Gilbert. Along with Megan's remains were the remains of three additional victims, Melissa Bartholomew, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, and Amber Lynn Costello. All four women were sex workers with similar body types who'd advertised their services on Craigslist and similar websites. The media dubbed them the Gilgo Four, and they were the first known victims of the Long Island serial killer. But as you already know, six more victims would be uncovered within the next year. And in light of all these traumatic events, Amanda really struggled. I mean, honestly, who fucking wouldn't? She was going through something that is so unbelievable. I can't imagine what it's like to learn that your sister is a victim of the Long Island serial killer, especially when he's never been caught. It's terrifying. And to cope, Amanda began self-medicating. And even though she recovered from her drug use quickly, it was still a really hard experience for her. I'm ashamed that... I went down that road because I was so against it. I was so against people, you know. You know, of course, I tried stuff at parties, like, here and there. It wasn't anything I got hooked on or, you know. And when I had done something and I realized that it kind of numbed me, it's like, oh, my God, like, I need this. Like, there's no way I can live life. I just wanted to be numb. After a while, Amanda was able to look into Megan's case more. She wanted to do what she could to help. And as a result, Amanda began seeing Megan in her dreams. I blocked my sister out completely. I think it was part of my healing process. It was like the way I had just coped with it. But I know it was my sister and I know it was her case. And I know I should have been on it more. And I have so much regret for that. Emotionally, it was very hard for me to do that, though. It's not like I chose that, but I woke up one day like, what am I doing? Megan needs justice, and me sitting here not waiting for NYPD to freaking solve the case, that clearly isn't, you know, at this point in time, it still, like, was a lot of crazy stuff going on with them. But anyways, I decided to just do my own investigation. I started listening to YouTube. I, I mean, nothing on LISC is not read on my YouTube. Nothing. I literally didn't need to do anything. Anything I could find. I had several suspects in my head, and I was very frustrated. I was like, Megan, I need your help. I need your help. I need a sign. I need something. I need you to give me something. She came to me in a dream three weeks later. I'm 33, and I've never in my life had a dream like this. I feel like she was telling me something. I could see myself standing in front of a a white fence, and I was on the grass in front of a white fence, and there was a road in front of me. And my sister started walking in front of the road, in front of me and I, I yelled Megan you know and she just just she smiled she just smiled the whole way over to me and I remembered anticipating how am I gonna talk to her how am I gonna ask her you know it was insane and she got closer to me she gave me a hug I hugged her 
and she said, I missed you. And I said, I missed you too so much. When Amanda heard that Shannon Gilbert's body had been found in December of 2011, she, like everyone else, was floored. Shannon's body was where? How many feet from her last known location? It seemed impossible. Around the same time that Shannon was found, Suffolk County got a new chief of police, a guy named James Burke. And at the time, nobody really thought anything of it. You know, a guy being appointed as the police chief seems like boring bureaucratic bullshit. Burke had been a chief investigator for the Suffolk County DA's office for almost 10 years. So his shiny new job as the chief of police kind of just seemed like a normal promotion. Then, a few years later, on December 9th of 2015, James Burke was arrested. That caught people's attention, and he was arrested for beating up a high school friend of mine. And this is a guy named Chris Loeb. And then he covered the whole thing up. So when this came to light, everyone was stunned, surprised, disgusted, outraged. You name it, people were feeling it. But then even more and even worse came to light about James Burke. Stories suggesting that Burke had possibly purposefully hindered the Long Island serial killer case to cover up his very own indiscretions. Everyone continued to be outraged, especially the families of the Long Island serial killer victims. It sucks because so much evidence, or if there was any, is literally, like, probably non-existent now. There were obviously so many questions. How had James Burke corrupted the Lisk investigation? Why wasn't something done about it sooner? And what have the Suffolk County police missed because of it? To answer all these questions, you know the drill. We got to go back. James Burke was born on June 29th of 1966 in New York, and he spent his entire life in Suffolk County, Long Island. And along the way, Burke made a lot of connections. One of Burke's most important connections was an attorney named Thomas Spoda. In 2001, Spoda would become the district attorney for Suffolk County. But when Burke met Spoda, it was way back in 1979. And this was when he was just your everyday prosecuting attorney. He was a brand new, fresh face up-and-coming lawyer trying to make a name for himself in the Suffolk County DA's office. And these men's unlikely friendship was key to their meteoric rise to power. And it all began with the 1979 case of a 13-year-old boy named Johnny Pius. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally. First with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. 
Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Thirteen-year-old Johnny Pius lived in Smithtown, New York on Long Island. So, fun fact, I grew up in Smithtown. I went to Smithtown High School and Smithtown Middle School. Johnny's house and where all this went down was about five minutes from where I grew up in my childhood home, which is crazy. And I've been to all these places. That is so crazy. It's even eerier, though, because it's so suburban and pretty. And to hear what horrible things have happened, it kind of blows your mind. But anyways, Jack, continue on. So the incident involving Johnny took place at 8.15 p.m. on Friday, April 20th of 1979. Johnny hopped on his bike to make a quick trip to his elementary school, and he told his dad he was going to meet a friend and he'd be back in 15 minutes. But Johnny never returned that night. And when he didn't come back, his dad went out to look for him. But honestly, Johnny's dad wasn't a great dad, so he stopped looking for him pretty quickly, even though Johnny was still nowhere to be found. In the morning, the search for Johnny continued, and almost immediately, they found his body behind the school. Someone had brutally beaten this 13-year-old and forced him to swallow rocks until he suffocated to death. Then the attackers buried Johnny under some leaves and debris and abandoned him. There was only one clue left behind. On Johnny's face, there was a clear imprint of a Puma sneaker, and the ME said that Johnny's wounds looked like they'd been inflicted by juveniles. So right away, investigators suspected that one or more children or teenagers had done this to Johnny Pius. Johnny's death hit the Smithtown community like a ton of bricks. They wanted police to find the perpetrators, and they wanted it now. But the Suffolk County authorities couldn't find any suspects. There just wasn't enough evidence. As investigators began questioning the local kids, they somehow landed on 15-year-old Peter Corderero. 
And what started as a casual questioning escalated into this intense four-hour-long interrogation. The police told Peter if he confessed, he could go home. When Peter wasn't sure what he was supposed to confess to, the police told him. And Peter repeated their words back to them. And then he was allowed to go home. And here's a brief sidebar. In those days, the Suffolk County police had one of the highest confession rates in the country at 91%. Yeah, I wonder why. And something to know about the Suffolk County police is they have, for decades, back in 79, they have been notorious for having corruption within the department. Mm. And I think things are on the up and up now, but this has been going on for a really long time because a confession rate like that is not realistic. I think most police departments hover around like the 30s and 40 percent. Yeah. So obviously these are coerced or beaten confessions. Right. Anyways, it's pretty problematic. And what's happening here with Peter Corderero, this is a textbook definition of a coerced confession. But at the time, it didn't matter. The Suffolk County police had Peter's confession, so in their eyes, this case was closed. Peter had implicated himself. He'd also implicated his 14-year-old brother, Michael, and their two friends, 17-year-old Robert Brenzik and 17-year-old Tommy Ryan. The story was that these four teenagers had stolen this little bike, and by pure chance, Johnny had seen them do it. And the motive, the driving force behind this murder, allegedly was because They needed to stop Johnny from telling on them. So as a result, they decided to kill him. And shortly after Peter gave this absolutely coarse confession, he recanted. And he claimed that neither he nor any of the three boys that he named had anything to do with Johnny's death. But at this point, the damage was already done. The public was certain that these four teenagers were the ones that killed Johnny, and nothing was going to change their minds about it. When Johnny's case went to trial... 38-year-old Thomas Spoda was the lead prosecuting attorney, and Spoda was under immense pressure to bring charges against these four boys. And this was despite there being literally zero evidence that connected them to Johnny's death. Right, but despite that, eight months after Johnny was killed, some new evidence did come to light. Evidence that caused the police to arrest Peter, Michael, Robert, and Tommy. And what was that evidence, you ask? Well, it actually wasn't evidence at all. It was a hearsay statement from a 13-year-old boy and a friend of these four suspects named James Burke. If that name sounds familiar, it's because he would become the police chief decades later. Either way, Burke claimed that he'd heard the four suspected boys confess to the truth that they had done this, that they had actually killed Johnny Pius. And you can hear this for yourself. Here's a 21-year-old James Burke describing it in his own words. Danny Collada asked him, how could you kill someone for just stealing a minibike? And how did he respond to that, Michael Cordero? Michael Cordero said, if you were drunk and stoned and you didn't want to get caught, you would do the same thing. I asked him, I said, uh, will you in any more trouble with this Pius case? And he, he said, the pig it up and too much time had passed. When the case of Johnny's murder went to court, Burke was kind of the star witness in the case. And for unknown reasons, his hearsay testimony was allowed in court. And as a result, Thomas Boda was able to successfully convict the four boys of murder without a single shred of evidence. Meanwhile, there was another suspect in Johnny's case that the Suffolk County police and Thomas Boda completely ignored. This guy named Robert Burke, no relation to James Burke, had said that he had to kill Johnny. And this is because he allegedly sexually assaulted him and didn't want Johnny to tell anyone. So in the decades that followed the convictions of these four suspects, 
there were a slew of appeals, retrials, overturned convictions, and we're not going to get into the minutia of how it played out for all four of them. But just know that eventually all of those teens who went to jail, basically as kids, all were out in the decades that followed due to the misconduct that occurred in not only acquiring the confession from Peter Portorero, but the lack of evidence in the cases against them. Either way, Johnny Pius never got justice. And Burke stepping up as a star witness and helping Spoda win his case. And these were initial cases of his career, very high-profile cases that were important for Tom Spoda to win. That marked the beginning of a symbiotic relationship between James Burke and Tom Spoda. James Burke doing him that favor as a teenage boy would pay off for the rest of his career because Spoda took Burke under his wing. We're talking uh, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch your situation at its finest. And in his teen years, Burke had a reputation as a serious troublemaker. There were rumors that he was involved in burglaries, petty thefts, dealing drugs, and similar offenses. Oddly enough, though, Burke never faced any charges. He never got into any trouble. And many people in Suffolk County wondered if that's because he and prosecuting attorney Thomas Spoda had an understanding of sorts. And that understanding lasted into their adulthoods. In fact, that understanding may have even motivated Burke to pursue his own career in law enforcement. So you might even be asking yourself, you know, who cares about this Tom Spoda guy? Why is this relevant? What's important about this crutchety old ass DA? Well, it's because when shit hit the fan with the Long Island serial killer case, these two men who had been friends since Burke was 13 when he did Spoda a favor would end up holding the two most powerful positions in this county. With Spoda's help, Burke had been installed as the Suffolk County Police Chief, and Spoda at the time was the Suffolk County DA. He had been elected. So kind of ironic, especially given Burke's police record. He had no business being promoted to chief in the first place. When Burke was 21 years old, he graduated from the New York City Police Academy. And about two years later, he was hired at the Suffolk County Police Department. Even though Burke was born and raised in Suffolk County, that's still a pretty big deal because the Suffolk County Police Department is surprisingly hard to get into. According to legislator and former detective Rob Trotta, it's statistically easier to get into Harvard than it is to get into the Suffolk County Police Department. And that's because the Suffolk County pays its police officers really, really well. According to their own documents, their veteran officers make about $160,000 a year. And this is not including overtime and their pensions keep them paid indefinitely after they retire. So yeah, there are a lot of perks and a lot of applicants for the job. And as soon as Burke entered the Suffolk County Police Force, he swiftly moved up the ranks. First, he was a patrolman and then he had an undercover narcotics beat. By 25, he was promoted to sergeant. And in the early 90s, Burke was even named Officer of the Year. By 2002, Burke was a lead investigator for the Suffolk County DA's office, working directly under his mentor, Tom Spoda. Spoda had been elected the year before, and Burke had played a big part in Spoda's campaign efforts. Crazy how, you know, everything just seemed to work out so perfectly for both of them. But to be fair, it did appear that Burke was really good at at least some parts of his job. He was known as being an extraordinary street cop, and he was great at building relationships with Suffolk County residents, and everybody who knew him seemed to really love him. And if they didn't love him, they kind of knew better than to say otherwise. Right. And James Burke's the kind of guy, he liked being an officer of the law. 
He liked to be treated, you know, like he was a king, and that's how he would act, according to his colleagues. He would show up to union meetings smoking cigars and schmoozing, and he knew how to speak to the press with an air of confidence. And overall, he knew how to impress people, and he knew how to impress the general public. He knew how to put on airs, and he was congenial in that way. So he was telegenic. He could do press conferences easily, and he knew how to get people to like him and do things for him. So it was kind of no surprise that Burke was being heavily considered for this role of Suffolk County Police Chief when the spot opened up in late 2011. But before Burke was officially selected as police chief, there were kind of murmurs that maybe he wasn't the right person for the job. In December of 2011, Democratic Party Chairman Richard Schaefer received an anonymous letter that asked him to reconsider supporting Burke. In this letter, which was signed by dedicated, hardworking members of Suffolk County Police Department, Burke was accused of hiring sex workers, using illegal drugs, and a bunch of other things that you don't really want your police chief to be caught doing, you know, on the weekends. Right. And these accusations, they weren't unsubstantiated. They were 100% true. In fact, Spoda knew about them. Everyone who had been a higher up in the police department as Burke was ascending in his career would have known about them. In Unraveled, we actually revealed that years ago, the Suffolk County Police actually had an internal affairs investigation following allegations about Burke's concerning behavior. And this investigation uncovered the fact that Burke had actually hired a sex worker and engaged in those services while he was on duty in his uniform and inside his marked police cruiser, and that he frequently went to parties and he did lots of drugs. This investigation substantiated all of these claims, and he was basically found guilty of committing, quote, conduct unbecoming of an officer. But I think that's a very mild way to put it. You know, it's you're going against literally everything, the integrity you're supposed to have as a police officer, right? But the thing is, he didn't face many consequences as a result of this investigation. Because remember, he was Spoda's guy. You know, he was very well connected. So he basically got a slap on the wrist. All he got was 15 of his vacation days taken away. And he got transferred to a different precinct on Long Island, which is very small. So it's not going to be that far away from where it was. So obviously, this is... A slap on the wrist at the very best. And unfortunately, nobody even really knew about these transgressions back in late 2011. And this was the time when Burke was gunning for the police chief position. The IAB documents detailing Burke's indiscretions were leaked in 2013 after he was arrested for beating Christopher Loeb. So most people didn't know that any of these things had happened at all. And if the letter did spook some of the higher ups, their concerns were quickly waved away because Thomas Spoda wrote a counter letter in support of James Burke as the new Suffolk County chief of police. And Spoda said that Burke had outstanding leadership. And so in January of 2012, Burke became the Suffolk County chief of police. In the second that Burke stepped into his new police chief role, he started changing things around this department. Basically, He fired everyone that he didn't like and forced them to either retire or take a demotion, and that would have been a pay cut as well. And he hired and promoted the people he did like. He wanted to surround himself with people who had proven their loyalty, and he strategically insulated this department with James Burke kind of guys, loyal guys, but not necessarily good cops. So Geraldine Hart, 
who was working for the FBI and who eventually was hired after all this Burke stuff happened as a Suffolk County police commissioner to kind of do damage control and try to fix the department. She basically said that Burke's leadership resembled a small mob. And she's right. If Burke had acted like a king before, he was actually the king now. And the only other person with more power than him was Tom Spoda, a guy he's had in his pocket since he was 13 years old. That is so fucking scary, dude. It's almost like I know this story so well, and it's almost, I still almost don't believe it Yeah, when we tell it. It's still like, I can't fucking believe no one called this out. No one called out the conflict of interest. Like, Spoda knew it was true. So a little side note. When this IAB investigation was going on in the 90s, when Burke slept with a sex worker in his car, the lawyer who defended him in that case, because it was basically like a deposition, all this stuff, was Tom Spoda. So he knew all about it. But then he writes this letter saying, no, 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 definitely still hire him. Ignore this letter, even though everything in the concerned letter was true. Yeah. It's really scary that these two people were in such positions of power. And Really, like, Spoda was, like, the brain, and Burke was the brawn. He could go out and, like, put muscle behind things to make things happen. And then Spoda wouldn't need to get his hands dirty. It's just crazy. It sounds like something out of a movie. Like, it is crazy that this happened in her life. It really is. But either way, back in 2013, two years after Burke became the police chief, we mentioned Chris Loeb earlier, and he's front and center in the Unraveled podcast. This is a much more truncated version of what happened. So if you want more information, you can go there. But basically, when this whole thing, when our interest in this case started, Chris Loeb had contacted me when he was in jail. And I was like, what are you in jail for? And he said he had been arrested for breaking into a car and stealing something from a car. But that's not really what the whole thing was about. The real reason that he'd been arrested was because he was now inexplicably linked to the Long Island serial killer case. And he had incriminating information on James Burke, information that implicated Burke in the case in kind of some bizarre ways. And this was information that Burke would do anything to keep under wraps. Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new. Because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun. FX's new international spy thriller The Veil starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge. Inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley. For the love of home. Chris struggles with opioid addiction, and to support his habit, he resorted to illegal activity. It's like stealing, burglary, and breaking into cars. So he would check parked cars to see if the doors were locked, and if they weren't, he'd raid them for change or just anything else that he could find. He was on parole at this time, but it didn't really slow him down for what he was doing. 
In 2012, Chris heard about this dirty cop who lived in a Smithtown neighborhood. And Chris was curious and tried to figure out where this guy lived, and a friend of his began looking for this dirty cop's home. They suspected that if this cop was so dirty, he probably would have drugs in his car. And eventually, they found the house. And Chris approached this cop's department-issued SUV that was parked in his driveway. And to his surprise and delight, the door had been left unlocked. He saw a black duffel bag inside the car, and he grabbed it, and he took off. Having no idea that this decision would change his life forever, change James Burke's life forever, and change a lot of things forever. When Chris got home, he started looking through the bag. And that's what he noticed, what was inside of it. And it's not what you think. And it wasn't the cache of drugs he was hoping for. It was something of a very different nature, a strange collection of items, if you will. A pink butt plug, sex lubricants, a handgun, a whistle, and five to six DVDs. Most of the DVDs were clearly marked as pornography. They had that little paper insert that all DVD cases have, and it suggested that, hey, there's porn on these DVDs. But one of them wasn't. One of them was blank. As if someone had, you know, maybe made it at home. So obviously Chris is super curious as to what is on this blank DVD. So he popped it into the DVD player and hit play. Chris claims that one of these DVDs was a snuff film. And if you don't know what a snuff film is, I'm sorry that I have to tell you right now. It is a pornographic film where someone kills a woman during the act of sex. And it was in this duffel bag that Chris had stolen. Right. And for the record, you know, this is Chris's story. A lot of people thought Chris was lying about a lot of things that actually have happened to him. We don't know. I mean, this is Chris's story, and I don't know if it's true, right? But given all we learn about James Burke, it wouldn't be the craziest thing in this case, right? It just, I have a very open mind about everything because it always just gets weirder and weirder for me. Yeah. But either way, according to Chris, as soon as he realized what was on this DVD, he knew he'd accidentally discovered something big, something that someone was going to come looking for. And he wasn't wrong. Shortly after Chris watched the film, the Suffolk County police were banging on his front door. And they entered Chris's home. He was living with his mother at the time. And although Chris tried to run, they apprehended him quickly. And one of the first words out of one of the police officers' mouths, according to Chris, is, where is the fucking duffel bag? They beat Chris up in front of his mom and they dragged him out of the house. And this is where it gets kind of weird. Even James Burke, police chief at the time, showed up at the scene. And if you know anything about police chiefs, this is a role that's largely administrative. It's not appropriate, nor do they ever show up at scenes for arresting petty criminals. And it was extra, extra inappropriate of him to do so in this case because Burke is technically the victim, right? His car was burgled. He should have no contact with the suspect, right? Right. But he doesn't care about the rules. Burke does whatever he wants. Chris hid the contents of the duffel bag in a shop vac, but leaving no stone unturned, the police ended up finding it and the unmarked DVD fell right out. The duffel bag then disappeared. Nothing inside of it was logged as evidence and nobody knows what happened to it to this day. Chris was then brought to the Suffolk County Police Department and he was moved to a room without cameras and he was chained to the floor by one of those eye bolts and he was left like in a squatting position for hours. He couldn't even sit down. 10 hours, actually, which is torturous. I know this sounds unbelievable, but it is what happened. 
And years later, multiple police officers would testify to it. And we haven't even covered the worst of it yet. Several police officers threatened Chris, and they said that they're going to arrest his mother on a made-up charge and then sexually assault her. Right. And sometime during all of this, police chief Burke entered the room and he made the other officers leave. And then he punched Chris in the face. And according to Chris's memory, Burke said things like, you think you can fucking steal from me? No one's ever going to believe you. I'm a decorated officer and you're a fucking junkie. And then he threatened to give Chris a hot shot, which is an injection of heroin that is poisonous, essentially, that would kill him. And suddenly, as all of this is going on, Chris finally realized what's happening. The duffel bag that he had stolen hadn't belonged to just any dirty cop. It was the property of Suffolk County Police Chief James Burke. And this, you know, this snuff film thing, I know it sounds like kind of out of left field. Yeah. But it's actually not the first time that Burke talked about snuff films throughout his career or was associated with them. On Unraveled, we interviewed a former detective at the Suffolk County Police Department named Rob Trotta. Jack mentioned him a little earlier in the episode. He's now in politics. He works as a legislator in Smithtown, New York. And he has a very distinct story in his memory from back in the 90s when he knew Burke as a fellow colleague. Burke was a sergeant, and I think Rob was under him at the time. They were at the scene of some accident, and Burke asked Rob Trotta if he knew where he could get a snuff film. And at the time, Rob wasn't sure if Burke was joking or trying to test him, but Rob Trotta didn't know what a snuff film was. So he was like, hey, what is a snuff film? And according to Rob, Burke went into great detail in explaining what it was and even did some animated body movements to describe what happens. And Rob was really disturbed by it. And it's a story he recounted for us. So it's like, this is something that Burke has talked about. This is not out of left field. And it also raised a lot of eyebrows given what else was in this duffel bag. I mean, you could see why other people would be so intrigued by the darkness here. So Chris's bail was set at almost half a million dollars and he was indicted on 30 counts. So clearly Burke was determined to put this guy away and he was going to use his power to do exactly just that. But the unexpected silver lining was that when Chris revealed that Burke had assaulted him, this over-the-top bail and ridiculous charges really proved his point. You know, he had just stolen a duffel bag. It's not like he stole the fucking Constitution. Or the Mona Lisa. Yeah, my God. Or child, you know? It's yeah. it's like, he, it's a petty theft. Why is this bail so high? Yeah. Because Burke has a personal axe to grind because he's afraid of this getting out. Right. So Burke, of course, it's he said, he said, just claimed that Chris was lying. And he had these army of loyal police, you know, henchmen that supported Burke's side of the story. Plus, there was no evidence of what had actually transpired following Chris's arrest. On January 24th of 2013, Chris was sentenced to three years in prison for owning brass knuckles. That's what they were able to, like, get him on, which was worse than the burglary, and Chris was already on probation. And this is actually wholly unrelated to why he was apprehended in the first place, but it didn't matter. The Suffolk County Police Department just wanted Chris out of the way because he was making waves, and they made it happen. And this is where Chris's story could have ended. Uh, you know, a lot of the time for people like Chris who've been targeted by police, it does. They're charged, they're convicted, they have their sentence, it's over. And the truth be damned. And what happens in Suffolk County Police stays in the Suffolk County Police Department like a blue wall of silence. 
Right. But what Burke didn't know, or maybe what he did know, was that during the course of all this, the FBI had quietly begun investigating Burke. I mean, he had gotten more than one complaint, more than just Chris Loeb saying that something bad had happened with Burke. Then in 2015, one police officer finally flipped on Burke and told the truth about what happened to Chris. And three more officers confirmed it. The FBI was ready, and Burke's regime fell apart. James Burke resigned in October of 2015, and he hoped that this act of good faith would kind of just get the FBI off his back. But luckily for us, Burke was indicted in December of 2015 for the atrocities that he committed against Chris, and he pled guilty. Oh, and a side note, if you're wondering again how Tom Spoda fits in with all of this, he helped James Burke cover it up. He was also indicted. He was also convicted. He was also sentenced for his role in this. So if anyone thinks it's a reach that these two people in the most powerful positions in Suffolk County, that collusion is a reach, you're wrong because they were both prosecuted and proved to have worked together to silence Chris Loeb because they didn't want to fuck up this hold on power that they had in this county, right? Either way, Chris, who was still in prison at the time, was finally released early on January 31st of 2017 as a result of perjured testimony by people following Burke's order. So originally, all the police had lied on the stand because Burke and Spoda had told them to tell this alternate story and alternate series of events. Yeah. And as a result, you know, there was a civil case that Chris won. He was awarded $1.5 million from the Suffolk County PD. So while 50-year-old James Burke was sentenced to 46 months in prison, he served more like 30 months and was released early. And that is despite the fact that he was found with oxy in his cell. He didn't get any extra time for that. He still got out early. No one can explain that to me. And these are federal prisons. So it's not even like he's pulling strings. So this is just being a white guy in a prison, I guess. You just kind of get away with it. Either way, people really look at this story with Chris and Burke as sort of one that is like David and Goliath, because so many people had tried to hold Burke accountable. And it was only when someone had nothing to lose because he was in jail and he was a drug addict and Burke couldn't do anything more to him because he'd already done the worst. It's the only time someone could like had the courage to stand up to Burke. So I really admire Chris for, for all of that, despite his shortcomings. And during this whole situation between Chris and Burke, more of Burke's corrupt actions as police chief were unveiled, including that he purposely shut out the FBI from the Long Island serial killer investigation, knowing that it would hinder the case's progress. He stopped the exhaustive resource-heavy searches, and he eliminated the opportunity for officers to gather more relevant evidence. But then everybody is asking why, like who exactly is Burke protecting? Well, this is where it gets really interesting, because according to pretty much every piece of evidence I've personally uncovered in this case, every interview I've conducted and every media report, Burke, by all accounts, was protecting himself. So remember those internal investigation documents? So when they went public, all of Burke's issues of police misconduct were exposed. And James Burke was on the front page of the local newspapers for having sex with a sex worker while on duty in his uniform. This started to become just circulating public knowledge. So even though it appeared that Burke was going to maybe get out of his scandal without criminal action against him, this was a PR disaster. This is a moral disaster. This is an ethical disaster. This is a police misconduct disaster. 
And he knew that the FBI was going to be looking at him very closely. And they were. They were looking for an excuse to do something about this menace with a police badge. So Burke, when he still had the power and the Long Island serial killer case was exposed that this killer existed, all these remains were found, the FBI came along and they offered resources. We'll give you profilers. We'll give you machines. We'll give you money. We'll give you our people. And Burke's like, no, no, no. You stay away. They wouldn't even let FBI professionals look at the evidence that they have. They completely blocked them from getting involved. And when you look at that, And you wonder why. Well, it's because he didn't want to get found out for the shit that he was doing. So from January 2012 to October of 2015, Burke shut out any FBI involvement in the case. And a federal source told reporters Burke never wanted us involved in the List case because he knew that we were investigating him. And brace yourselves because we haven't told you the worst part yet. So... In the 90s, the IAB investigation revealed that he was hiring sex workers in uniform, whatever. But there was stuff going on in the 2000s. So Burke was actually hiring sex workers and having sex with them at cocaine-fueled parties that were taking place in Oak Beach. As a reminder, Oak Beach is where Shannon went missing. Very small community. It's like 200 houses. And where the bodies of several, several other people were found near, and he was doing this during the investigation. So after the bodies had already been found, he's a law enforcement officer, and he's engaging in hiring sex workers and sleeping with them in the same place where Shannon Gilbert went missing. You know, it's rumored that he knew Joseph Brewer. He knows these people. He used to patrol this neighborhood when he was coming up as a cop in his early days. Like, this There's no excuse for this. The party where he did this on this specific occasion that really got him in trouble is actually occupied. The resident is someone with political connections, and we can't say more than that so I don't get sued. We, We had the same problem on Unraveled. And I interviewed the sex worker who had this experience with James Burke. I know this is true. And we're going to just boil this down for you. So again, a law enforcement officer is hiring sex workers in the same tiny neighborhood where Shannon goes missing and where they're finding the bodies of sex workers. Like who fucking does that? What kind of arrogance and hubris is this? Like who does that? (laughs) At the time, he was a lead investigator at the DA's office. And he's like, who does that? Like this is not a man who respects women, respects his job, respect, has any integrity, like how he's looked at by other people and what this job means and like clearly no respect for sex workers if, you know, he was reportedly very violent during this encounter, called the girl a bad whore, choked her, just disgusting behavior. And this is a man who's who's supposed to give a shit about these murdered women. Why the fuck would he if this is how he treats the ones who are alive? That is the epitome of thinking that you're above the law. And he was. He was just getting away with all this fucking behavior for so long. It's disgusting. Disgusting. And suddenly it makes way more sense why he wouldn't want the FBI investigating over here, why they wouldn't want them knocking on every door in Oak Beach, because they were going to stumble across this information at some point. Oh, yeah. And he cared more about himself and his career trajectory than he did about 10 murdered people. So Burke was never named a suspect in the Long Island serial killer case. And I think that there's little doubt that he fucked the case up royally. And in fact, only one person has ever been officially named. And this is the same person responsible for the murders of Rita Tangretti and Colleen McNamee. 
Lawrence and Charlotte McNamee of Holbrook have been left heartbroken by the murder of their 20-year-old daughter, Colleen, in January 1994. Any unsolved case is extremely frustrating. Police can't crack the murder of Colleen McNamee, whose body was found off the LIE near the William Floyd Parkway. And they've run into a brick wall with the murder of 31-year-old Rita Tangretti of East Patchogue. She was discovered dead two months earlier in an abandoned housing development in East Patchogue. We believe that these two cases are tied together. To ensure the integrity of the case, police will only say the killings appear to be sexually motivated. The two women engaged in prostitution and were known to each other. Colleen McNamee's parents say their daughter was a 1991 graduate of Sachem High School and worked in a series of retail jobs before falling victim to drugs. But she did seek treatment, and the last time anybody saw her was the day she left an Islandia drug rehab center with another patient. Colleen's mother remembers their last visit together. The last time I saw my daughter, life was going in the right direction for her. She was vibrant, she looked beautiful, she dressed lovely. She was so happy, she had plans for the evening. And I figured we're finally on the way. In 2014, the police arrested a man named John Bitrolf after he was connected via DNA. Just feel really relieved, finally. Anthony Tangretti could barely speak after he sat through the arraignment of the man now charged with murdering his mother and another woman in the early 1990s. His aunt said the family thought this day would never come. No, I never did. John, did you kill those two women? 48-year-old John Bitroloff of Manorville was arraigned today on charges he murdered 31-year-old Rita Tangretti and 20-year-old Colleen McNamee. Tangretti was found dead in a wooded area in East Patchogue in November of 1993. McNamee was found dead in the woods in Shirley in January of 1994. Police say both women worked as prostitutes. They were found naked, beaten, and strangled. Detectives say they caught John Bitroloff after his brother, Timothy, was convicted in an unrelated case. Timothy's DNA was entered into a state database and showed a family connection to the DNA recovered at the scene of the murders. This case was solved and is a testament to the miracle of modern DNA science. And even though Bitroloff is charged with murdering two women, Suffolk District Attorney Tom Spoda says there could be more victims out there, including Sandra Castilla. Her body was found in November of 1993 in Southampton. The manner of death, the positioning of her body, and other trace evidence of Miss Castilla is similar to that of Tangretti and McNamee. John Bitrolf was a carpenter who lived in Manorville. And if that sounds familiar, Manorville is where the torsos of Jessica Taylor and Valerie Mack were discovered in 2000 and 2003. And these remains, weirdly enough, were discovered roughly three miles away from Bitrolf's home. And a further link between Bitrolf and the Long Island serial killer case has been established, apparently. Apparently, the adult daughter of Bitrolf, victim Rita Tangretti, was reportedly friends with Melissa Bartholomew, one of the Gilgo Four. And Melissa's mother actually reported that Melissa had lots of calls to Manorville from her phone at the time. So Bitrolf is indeed a pretty viable suspect. And please know exactly where he is behind bars. However, the reporting as it comes to Bitrolf was a little bit confusing because there are many news segments where law enforcement deny that he could be the Long Island serial killer. 
Right. And I wonder about that too. It's like, you know exactly where he is now and you know how to look up his shit. Like, wouldn't you be able to confirm, like, wouldn't you have been able yeah. to find something by now to if, link think. him to at least one of these 10 people other than this? Long Island's also a small island. So like, I don't believe in a million coincidences. I believe in one. And I believe that Rita Tangretti's daughter being friends with Melissa is a coincidence. Yeah. But is it on an island that's 50 miles by 100? Is it beyond a reasonable doubt coincidence? I don't think so. Right. Either way, if he's not Lisk, then he's just another scumbag monster preying on sex workers, just like Joel Rifkin was. I mean, that was a Long Island-based serial killer who was going after the same kind of women through some delusional thought process that they were better than these women. You know, it's just insane. So when Megan's sister Amanda, you know, we heard her talking about her dreams earlier in this episode, they actually culminated in something that really made her believe that John Bitroff could be the Long Island serial killer. I asked her what happened that night and bam, in the blink of an eye, like literally a blink, and I see this guy who is like very, very tall. I would have to say between five nine and six foot tall. That would be my guess. But I mean, the description of it was unreal, unreal. But he was walking towards me, very fast, very, very, very fast, very raged, very, very fast. And uh, when I ran back, I I looked over my shoulder, and it was like my brain took like a photographic picture, and I woke up. I'm not trying to call out John Bitchell. I am not saying it was him, but he was the guy in my dream. I looked up suspects of Megan Waterman and his face popped right up and my heart stopped. I feel like I've met him. I feel like I've talked to him. I feel like I've heard his voice. It's like I cannot even shut how real it felt. I thought they were just trying to use him as like a scapegoat until I had that dream. And now like, I think Megan was trying to tell me something. I don't think it was a coincidence. And the police also looked into Joseph Brewer, who was the John who hired Shannon Gilbert the night that she went missing. And it's unclear why he was cleared as a suspect, but he eventually was. And then, of course, there is Dr. Peter Hackett. He actually called Shannon's mother the day after Shannon vanished. And this was before Shannon's mother even knew that she was missing at all. So, Alexis, please explain Hackett. Okay, Peter Hackett is a piece of work. So he's a very strange former Oak Beach resident who was living in this neighborhood when Shannon vanished. And he's kind of a weird dude. He has very close ties to the SCPD, which is Suffolk County Police Department. And he called himself the Suffolk County Police Surgeon, which is not really an official thing, but that's what was reported that he was because he treated, I guess, Suffolk County police officers for a time. And he saw himself kind of as like the mayor of Oak Beach. He acted as like the de facto security guard. And rumors that we kind of verified during Unraveled was that he was kind of dealing drugs and exploiting his ability to prescribe medication in this community. He was like the go-to guy if you needed whatever. And it's really hard to explain these calls he made to Shannon's mother. So he denied that he did this at first, but then she provided proof in the form of phone records to prove that he did in fact call her. And that brings up some questions too. It's like, where the fuck did he get Mary Gilbert's number? That's Shannon's mother. He had to have gotten it either from Shannon or from Shannon's phone. Why would you say in this call to Shannon's mother, he said, I run a home for wayward girls. I'm treating your daughter. 
what, why would you say that? You know, it's this is even bizarre. before she's missing. Yeah. And then you deny making the calls and then she proves it. It's just sort of Hackett is a sketchy ass character. The Gilbert family attorney, John Ray, who's a friend of mine, is convinced that he is very, very deeply, deeply connected to this case beyond just Shannon. It's a point of controversy. You know, a lot of people have different beliefs about this case, but Hackett is definitely a strange character in this twisted saga, for sure. He also acted super bizarrely when reporters began confronting him about these allegations. And there's a True Crime Daily clip on YouTube that you can look up where he literally, literally fakes having a heart attack in front of the cameras. And Shannon Gilbert's case remains a point of controversy within the Long Island serial killer case itself. Today, the sister of Shannon Gilbert blasted the Suffolk County Police Department for how they handled the case. On Friday, the department repeated its assertion that Gilbert's death was an accident, even though her death is what triggered a police investigation that exposed a much larger mystery and a possible Gilgo Beach serial killer. News for Greg Sergal, live in Yapank now with the story today. Greg. Adam, uh, Shannon Gilbert's sister spoke to us today from her upstate New York home. And as you said, her words calling into question the police conclusions about Shannon Gilbert's death. State police. Yeah, there's somebody asking me. This 911 call from May 2010 was the last time that escort Shannon Gilbert was heard alive. When Suffolk police released the call last Friday, Shannon's sister couldn't bring herself to listen. But Cherie Gilbert said today she isn't buying the police conclusion her sister's death was accidental. It doesn't matter if people think that she's a victim of the Long Island serial killer or not. Something happened to her that night. The night Shannon Gilbert went missing, her sister believes she may have been drugged and later died. The family lawyer insists she was strangled. Shannon Gilbert was murdered. The evidence of that fact is overwhelming. And the police department have covered that up. I'm Detective Lieutenant Kevin Byra. The Gilbert family wants Suffolk's chief homicide investigator to step aside and for the state attorney general to appoint an independent investigator to look at the Gilbert case. I just feel like they dropped the ball from the very beginning. Um, they didn't allow the FBI to come in. And I just think that we definitely need somebody to come in independently and review this case. When looking at Shannon's case, there are some anomalies in her case that do differ from the others. She's the only victim where we know who her client actually was, the John that hired her. And Shannon had a driver, Michael Pack. So she would have been harder to kill without Michael noticing. Right. There are anomalies for sure. But let me ask you this. That's what Matt's dad, who's a cop, always says. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this when he's about to like prove a point, you know, and I've started using it. So how many coincidences, Jack, are you okay with? Because I'm okay with maybe one. Yeah, like we were saying earlier. Sometimes. But I'm pretty skeptical of, of a coincidence. What is too many coincidences? You know? Like, let's go through it. Shannon was petite. She was in her early 20s. She was a sex worker who advertised on Craigslist, just like the other victims. She also ran screaming from the house, yelling, they're trying to kill me, on the phone with 911, from a neighborhood where the bodies of 10 sex workers would be found just a stone's throw down the road. So this also happened to be the same neighborhood where people, law enforcement, like James Burke, were participating in sex-fueled sex worker cocaine parties with other politicians. (laughs) Yeah. So 
Then they eventually find Shannon, as we explained in last week's episode. And then they tell everybody that Shannon died due to an accidental drowning mere inches of water when she knew how to swim. (laughs) Okay. I don't know. Then she's found 0.3 miles from where she vanished after people look for her for two years within a 50 mile radius. They also found like her purse and everything right before they found her body. I'm like, how was this not found before? Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. I'm sorry. Like, these are too many coincidences for me. And I'm, I don't know what it means, but like something's fucked up here. And there's no way this is all just naturally unfolding occurring events. This something's wrong. Okay. And even let's pretend she isn't directly connected to this case and to these victims. She still is because she was a sex worker who died violently. There's attitudes about these women and they played a part in all of the violence they experienced. There's just no way this much concentrated violence against sex workers would happen in such a tiny concentrated area without there being something bigger going on. Like, oh my God, there's just too much weird shit happening. Yeah. It's like, even if it's like the, the MO differs a little bit, like even if these things are kind of off, it's like, obviously this is interconnected in some way. Might be even a different person, but it's interconnected. And yeah, there's just, there is no such thing as a million coincidences like that. Nope. So there's been wild speculation about Shannon's connection to the Long Island serial killer case. Like whether Shannon was going to become a victim of one of those snuff films that we were talking about earlier and that James Burke kept talking about. Or perhaps she had shown up to one of Oak Beach's iconic sex parties. Or maybe somebody gave her drugs. And when things went south, Shannon knew that she had to leave. She called 911, but before the police officers arrived, which again was an hour and a half later, maybe somebody took care of Shannon. All of the victims discovered between December 2010 and December 2011 are considered highly likely to be victims of the Long Island serial killer. The Gilgo Four, which includes Megan Waterman, Melissa Bartholomew, Marine Brainerd Barnes, and Amberlynn Costello, and the six victims found after the Gilgo Four were discovered. Jessica Taylor, Valerie Mack, Peaches, Baby Doe, Fire Island Jane Doe, and Gilgo Beach Doe. But beyond that, there's also a whole slew of additional possible victims that could be connected to this case. Of course, there is Shannon Gilbert, and then there's 31-year-old Natasha Jugo, who lived in Queens Village, who went missing in 2013. Her car and belongings were found on the western side of Gilgo Beach, 30 miles from where she was last seen. Later, her body was found in the same area. And then there's Cherries, who is an unidentified woman. Her torso was discovered in a suitcase in Westchester County, New York. And this is about an hour's drive from Gilgo Beach. And then there's 39-year-old Tanya Rush, who is a mother of three and a lovely person. She was also a sex worker. Her dismembered remains were found in a suitcase in Nassau County, which is right next to Suffolk County. And there are so many more potential victims. Right. And while there's been little movement when you're speaking relatively, there has been some new developments in the list case over the years. In 2014, a forensic pathologist determined that it was odd that Shannon's body was found face up if she had indeed died by accidental drowning. Then in 2020, the Suffolk County Police released an image of a belt that was found next to one of the victim's bodies. And this belt had a distinct HM or WH embossment, depending on which way you were holding it. But it was kind of lackluster. I mean, they have so much evidence and they haven't released anything. Yeah. And I think it was such a flaw in their investigation because now it's been 13 years. Yeah. No one's going to remember this shit anymore. Either way, according to our research, it may have been what Newsday back in 2010 reported as an item found wrapped around one of the victim's necks. So that's 
what they're thinking. But another weird thing I wanted to point out for those of you following the case, they've never actually shown the belt. They've only shown pictures of the belt. And I'm like, yeah. show me the fucking belt. Yeah. Show me the belt. Because I'm so suspicious of all of them that they don't even have it anymore. Yeah. Or is it suspiciously missing? Like everything in Burke's fucking duffel bag. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm like, where is the belt? You're just showing yeah. a picture. Like, I don't care if you need to put it under like a plastic box because you're worried about people touching it. I would love to see a belt. Right. Personally. So in 2022, the current Suffolk County Police Commissioner released the three 911 calls from the night that Shannon disappeared. And also in 2022, they released five surveillance videos from the hotel where Megan Waterman disappeared. Megan can be seen walking in and out of the lobby. Okay, so this was a big thing when we did Unraveled. We were demanding that they do is like release these 911 calls. It had been over 10 years. Like, what are you hiding? Why wouldn't... And it fueled speculation even more. You know, people were like, why the fuck won't you release these? Especially once they did release them, finally, after over a decade, it was like, why didn't you release this? Yeah. what, what, What was the whole big deal about holding it back so long? Then you also say she's not a victim of Long Island serial killer. You say she died by misadventure. So if that's the case, it's case closed. You're not allowed to hold evidence back like that. Yeah. So they keep contradicting themselves. Well, it's also like if you're so sure that she died by misadventure, then it wouldn't be a big deal at all to release those calls. You know, if there is nothing damning on them, then like what's what's the big holdup? Absolutely. And another thing that just bothers me so much is these videos of Megan Waterman, right? We've been talking to Megan Waterman's sister for three episodes now. And you know what people remember is things that happened to them last week. So when Megan went missing, why the fuck wouldn't you release these tapes to be like, hey, was anyone at the Hot Bog Holiday Inn off 347 on such and such date? Here's a video. Did you see this woman? Yeah. What people aren't going to do is remember anything. 12, 13 years later. Yeah, it's disgusting. Cool. Now you release it, but it's too late. Like anything you could have gleaned from that is it's fucking over. It's memories fade. It's just their strategy here is maddening. So the general consensus is that this information wasn't released earlier because Burke stopped it from coming out, which would make a lot of fucking sense. For years, everybody had been pressuring the Suffolk County police for more evidence. And Megan's sister Amanda wonders what we could have solved if the public had known some of this information sooner. And this is especially regarding those hotel security videos that we were just talking about of her sister, Megan. We had pushed them. We had pushed them to to release it sooner. And now I know why it wasn't released sooner. I'm assuming because of the chief, that's my guess. Either him or somebody in that precinct did something to avoid it getting out. Because I mean, that's just not something you release 10 years later. That is something you release immediately. There was a woman that walked out that door 10 seconds after my sister. She could have been like, she got in this kind of car. And that was crucial. That was literally the only thing that we had for any hope of finding out what happened to her. Thankfully, there's new leadership at the Suffolk County Police Department. And it seems to be good, strong leadership and passion leadership, leadership with integrity. So hopefully things will be taking a turn. Getting rid of James Burke, obviously, and sentencing him to federal prison is certainly a great first step. But granted, he is out now. People send me pictures of him all the time. Like, hey, just saw James Burke at a deli. Is he still in Suffolk County? Oh, yeah. He's living in the same house. He pretends it wasn't him. We knocked on the door and unraveled. He's like, yeah, he doesn't live here. I'm like, yes, he does. Be like, I know that voice. You I fucking know that idiot. <laughs> exactly. Then in 2022, the Suffolk County Police Department announced that they created a special task force to help solve the list case. 
they released a statement that's kind of boring. You know, we're going to use new scientific techniques to advance this investigation and collaborate on the evidence gathered throughout the decades-long case that spans from Manorville to Hempstead. Okay, cool. Let's see some results, though. Come on. So we also know that they're actively trying to identify peaches using genetic genealogy and working with other police departments in other states to try to track down people in her family. And we really hope that they are successful in their efforts because Peaches and her baby really deserve to be identified and honored. So here's another thing, a little piece of inside gossip that we have. So at CrimeCon, maybe two, three, a, a long time ago, we met the guy whose father created the MVAC machine. So an MVAC is a machine that uses water to extract touch DNA evidence. And he told us insider information that the Suffolk County Police Department had purchased an MVAC from him that same year. So they were at least, they're trying. Hypothetically, they could be testing clothing that the women were found in, burlap that the women were wrapped in. There's a lot of stuff, avenues they could possibly, you know, pursue. We also know that they're doing a lot of cell phone data searches through data dumps that could hopefully, you know, place someone's cell phone using algorithms. You know, they would need to be in all these spots at this time, but that's exhaustive and really difficult. So they're certainly trying and this isn't us disparaging them because the new regime, I do believe, are doing the good work. But James Burke really fucking derailed this thing and it could have been solved had he been checked sooner. And, you know, corruption begets corruption and there's no avoiding that. Like, if Burke had been checked, this could have been solved. And with new, less corrupt law enforcement officials, advanced technology, and databases like CODIS, Amanda has hope that the Long Island serial killer can be and will be caught. This case is still unsolved. And it's important to get it out there. So in case, by chance, somebody hears this and has it in their heart to come forward, the smallest information could help. Like, just to keep bringing awareness so this case doesn't get go cold you know that's my biggest fear i don't think it will i hope it doesn't but he should definitely pay for what he did i have hope i really do i try not to lose that hope in the united states sex work is a booming industry it generates about 14 billion dollars per year and there are probably more than 2 million practicing sex workers so why isn't sex work legal in the united states There are obviously two sides to this discussion. On the one hand, sex work contributes to sex trafficking. And yes, sex trafficking is an atrocity. It's literally a modern-day slave trade, and it should be stopped at all costs. But this then brings up another important question. Does sex work only go hand-in-hand with sex trafficking because sex work is illegal? If we decriminalize sex work, regulated it, offered protections, and brought sex workers into the public eye as respected professionals. Could we protect sex workers better? Could we stop them from being murdered? Right now, sex workers post online ads in the dark recesses of the internet where their clients are anonymous and impossible to track. They can't do background checks. They can't even protect themselves from their clients. Or they're literally standing outside and forced to trust whatever Joe Schmo rolls up on them. Just imagine a world where sex workers could run background checks, request SCD information, and keep logs of their clients. They could even share blacklists, warning others away from clients who were known to push boundaries, be unsafe, or do other disrespectful garbage shit. And we've all, you know, heard this adage that sex work is the oldest career in the book. So, like, 
why are we shunning the people who are delivering these services that people clearly want? Because remember, every type of person patronizes sex workers. Heck, decorated police officials like James Burke, politicians, and celebrities like Hugh Grant. They're all doing it. Like, why are they okay and they're safe, but the women who are, you know, serving the demand are not? Obviously, we said the main reason why we wanted to do the series on the Long Island serial killer is to erase the stigma that we have around sex work and start valuing sex workers themselves and make policies that really keep sex workers safe. If you have any information pertaining to Megan's case or the Long Island serial killer, please contact the Suffolk County Crime Stoppers at 1-800-220-TIPS. There's a $50,000 reward for information leading to an arrest. And if you don't have any tips or information, you can still help. Right. Just educate yourself. Give a shit. Advocate for sex workers and visit the Heavy Metal Project to learn more about the victims, to shop the Heavy Metal Project collection with these necklaces dedicated to each of the victims with all of the money raised going to the Sex Workers Outreach Project. It's an amazing organization. It's going to help keep other sex workers safe. Um, And we want to give Amanda a huge thank you from the bottom of our hearts for speaking with us for these episodes. She's been through hell. She misses her sister. She wants justice for her sister. Her strength and determination is inspiring. And we are right alongside you, fighting with you for this case to be solved. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 